This week's episode of the Auburn Investment Properties podcast was brought to you by the real estate brokerage firm of Auburn Investment Properties. Our company was built from the very start by investors and for investors. Since 2015, we've served our clients as trusted advisor as they try to reach a variety of investing goals. So whether you're buying your first or your next rental property, or you're a parent buying a house or condo for your college-age kids, or you're an experienced local or out-of-town investor looking to add properties in Auburn to your portfolio, you're in the right place. On this week's episode, I'm going to do something a little unconventional and take you back to a meal I had in a late-night diner on Beale Street in Memphis, Tennessee. Something happened in a little cafe that night that changed my life. This is probably about 15 years ago. It has helped me end occasional stretches of depression and given me an outlook that would forever change my life. And it has something to do with the unusual combination of a bachelor party and Tennessee Williams of all people. So, all right, have I gotten your curiosity up yet? All right, that's good. Let's get through the intro music and drop in on that life-changing night in Memphis. Welcome to the Auburn Investment Properties Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kearns. I've been investing in Auburn, Alabama for over 20 years, and I'm also the broker of a specialized real estate company by the name of Auburn Investment Properties. On this podcast, we'll look at the big picture strategies, practical tips, and local issues affecting real estate investors here in Auburn. We'll also interview other local investors to see what you and I can learn from their mistakes and their successes. My very first tenant moved in in January of 2000, and I built my rental business from one unit up to over 100 and collected around 10,000 rent payments during that time. But I also got burned out, so I sold it all, traveled for a while, and then rebuilt it again at a smaller scale. Now that I'm able to live off my rental income again, I try hard to keep it in perspective as part of a more balanced life. At my brokerage firm, Auburn Investment Properties, we help investors of all kinds, from first-timers to college parents to savvy veterans looking to grow. My own unique experience lets us serve our clients way beyond just getting them to the closing. This podcast is a way to entertain, inform, and get the word out that we're serious about investing in Auburn. So if that's what you want to do too, I don't think you can find a better broker and mentor to help you do it. So sit back, throw on some headphones, and let's take a journey into the real world of real estate investing in Auburn, Alabama. Okay, so as I said in the opening, we're going to take a little trip back to a turning point in my life about 15 to 18 years ago. I was in Memphis for a friend's wedding that weekend. Uh, shout out to one of my earliest Auburn friends, Casey Gillis from Columbia, Tennessee. If you ever hear this one, Casey, then thanks, brother. It was a big night. You weren't even there, but it was a big night. So I guess it was a Friday night because uh, the wedding was on Saturday, I think. Uh, so I was in Memphis and I was invited to the wedding, but for some reason he didn't let me know where the bachelor party was. Nice going, buddy. Uh, probably because I'm not big on the drinking and partying scene that would typically be part of a bachelor party in a big city like Memphis, right? So anyway, around that time, I found myself at one of my many crossroads in life. When I had some level of success already, but something just wasn't sitting quite right, and I wasn't sure if I should keep going or adjust my course to a different direction. I found myself taking a break from reading business books for a while, and it picked up a few classic novels and even some plays, including the man mentioned in this week's title, Tennessee Williams. Now, previously, when I was even in school, I had um, a few times when I was deciding if I should continue with school or change majors or drop out or whatever, and so I always kind of got to these these points in life where I'd sit back and you know, evaluate things and then jump back into something. Usually the same thing I was in, but not always, not always. So here we are, one of those moments in uh, Memphis, right? A couple years ago, maybe 15 years ago, something like that. So Tennessee Williams, famous playwright, okay? The Glass Menagerie is something that he wrote. It had been a smash hit in 1944, but to me, the play is less memorable than something related to it. I have to confess, I had to look up what a menagerie was while while writing these notes for the episode, and if you're wondering, it's a collection of animals on display 
or an exhibition of some kind, kind of like a zoo, but not not necessarily the same. So in the play, the main female character had a collection of small glass figurines. They were all animal shapes, which was a reference to her own frail state, both mentally and physically. Uh, she was a sickly person, and people are always kind of taking care of her and stuff like that. So honestly, I didn't remember any of that, which is funny because I'm recording a podcast about Tennessee Williams and based on the glass menagerie. Well, sort of I am, right? So here we are. Um, back to that night in Memphis. So I'm eating dinner late at a cafe or diner, I guess you could call it, on the corner of Beale Street and 2nd Street in a place now called the Blue City Cafe. That's from Google Images, Google Maps. I don't know if that was her name back then or not. It doesn't really matter, I guess. It's just a you know cafe, music-themed cafe on Beale Street, like one of a million, right? So I was kind of bummed about about driving all the way up there and not at least being invited to the bachelor party where I could like turn down the invitation and then doing a lot of thinking about life in general, how I'd been doing so far, um, where I was going, was I happy with it? So I opened the pages of this paperback play that I'd brought with me, this old print-off I got from a used bookstore, and I came across something called The Catastrophe of Success. My life has never been the same since that point. Before we dig into that moment, we're going to jump back to Tennessee Williams for a minute. In 1947... He wrote an essay for the New York Times that explained how the effect of the overnight success, you know, in air quotes, right, had on his life. The overnight success of the play The Glass Menagerie, you know, it changed his life immediately, and it was a huge smash hit. And so the title of the essay was The Catastrophe of Success, right? So you can kind of guess how it was going for him now that he's successful after all these years of struggling. So instead of bumbling through a summary of it, I'm going to read it for you in just a little while. Um, so before you think of skipping past this or skipping on to another episode entirely, let me tell you it's not that long. It should be required reading for every entrepreneur, in my opinion, especially in real estate, where we think mailbox money is the ultimate end goal. If you've ever achieved it and had something just coasting in and, or you retired from something else, you know it's not all it's cracked up to be. Also, I recommend it to anybody who is about to retire from their regular job because their life's about to change pretty dramatically, too. And there's a reason many retirees are so miserable and end up going back to work or feeling depressed, even though they don't need the money. So what's the common link? Listen up to this essay and you'll gain some valuable insight. And I'll come back at the end with some comments afterwards that will directly impact your success and your happiness for the rest of your life. I may stumble here and there as I read through this thing because it's always tougher to read something that somebody else wrote, especially if you're reading it out loud and someone's actually listening to it. So I'm going to give it a shot in a second. Here we go. All right, no pressure at all, right? I'm just reading like a famous thing written by a famous person. So, The Catastrophe of Success by Tennessee Williams. Remember, this is 1947. His play debuted in 1945 was a big-time success. So here we are, a couple years after that. This winter marked the third anniversary of the Chicago opening of The Glass Menagerie, an event that terminated one part of my life and began another, about as different in all external circumstances as could well be imagined. I was snatched out of virtual oblivion and thrust into sudden prominence, and from the precarious tendency of furnished rooms about the country, I was removed to a suite in a first-class Manhattan hotel. My experience was not unique. Success has often come that abruptly into the lives of Americans. The Cinderella story is our favorite national myth, right? The cornerstone of the film industry, if not for democracy itself. I've seen it enacted on the screen so often that I was now inclined to yawn at it, not with disbelief, but with an attitude of who cares. 
Anyone with such beautiful teeth and hair as the screen protagonist of such a story was bound to have a good time one way or another, and you could bet your bottom dollar and all the tea in China that one would be caught dead or alive at any meeting involving social conscience. No, my experience was not exceptional, but neither was it quite ordinary, and if you're willing to accept the somewhat eclectic proposition that I had not been writing with such an experience in mind, and many people are not willing to believe that a playwright is interested in anything but popular success, there may be some point in comparing the two estates. The sort of life that I had had previous to this popular success was one that required endurance, a life of clawing and scratching along a sheer surface and holding on with tight and raw fingers to every inch of rock higher than the one caught hold of before, but it was a good life because it was a sort of life for which the human organism is created. I was not aware of how much vital energy had gone into the struggle until the struggle was removed. I was out on a level plateau, with my arms still thrashing and my lungs still grabbing at air that no longer resisted. This was security at last. I sat down and looked about me and was suddenly very depressed. I thought to myself, this is just a period of adjustment. Tomorrow morning I'll wake up in this first class hotel suite above this discreet hum of an east side boulevard and I'll appreciate its elegance and luxuriate in its comforts and know that I have arrived at our American plan of Olympus. Tomorrow morning, when I look at the green satin sofa, I will fall in love with it. It's only temporarily that the green satin looks like slime on stagnant water. But in the morning, the inoffensive little sofa looked more revolting than the night before, and it was already getting too fat for the $125 suit which a fashionable acquaintance had selected for me. In the suite, things began to break accidentally. An arm came off the sofa. Cigarette burns appeared on the polished surface of the furniture. Windows were left open, and a rainstorm flooded the suite. But the maid always put it straight, and the patience of the management was inexhaustible. Late parties could not offend them seriously. Nothing short of a demolition bomb seemed to bother my neighbors. I lived on room service, but in this, too, there was disenchantment. Sometime between the moment when I ordered the dinner over the phone and when it was rolled into my living room like a corpse on a rubber-wheeled table, I lost interest in it. I once ordered a sirloin steak in a chocolate sundae, but everything was so cunningly disguised on the table that I mistook the chocolate sauce for gravy and poured it on the sirloin steak. Of course, all of this was the more trivial aspect of a spiritual dislocation that began to manifest itself in far more disturbing ways. I soon found myself becoming indifferent to people. A well of cynicism rose in me. Conversations all sounded as if they had been recorded years ago and were being played back on a turntable. Sincerity Kindliness seemed to have gone out of my friends' voices. I, I suspected them of hypocrisy. I stopped calling them, stopped seeing them. I was impatient of what I took to be inane flattery. I got so sick of hearing people say, Oh, I loved your play, that I could not thank you any more. I choked on the words and turned rudely away from the usually sincere person. I no longer felt any pride in the play itself, but began to dislike it probably because I felt too lifeless inside to ever create another. I was walking around dead in my shoes, and I knew it, but there were no friends I knew or trusted sufficiently at that time to take them aside and tell them what was the matter. The curious condition persisted in about three months till late spring when I decided to have another operation, mainly because of the excuses it gave me to withdraw from the world behind a gauze mask. It was my fourth eye operation, and perhaps I should explain that I had been afflicted for about five years with a cataract on my left eye, which required a series of needling operations and finally an operation on the muscle of the eye. The eye is still in my head, so much for that. Well, the gauze mask served a purpose. 
While I was resting in the hospital, the friends whom I had neglected or affronted in one way or another began to call on me, and now that I was in pain and darkness, unpleasant mutation which I had suspected earlier in the season had now disappeared, and they sounded now as if they had used to sound in the lamented days of my obscurity. Once more they were sincere and kindly voices with the ring of truth in them and that quality of understanding for which I had originally sought them out. As far as my physical pain was concerned, this last operation was only relatively successful, although it left me with an apparently clear black pupil in the right position, or nearly so, but in another figurative way it had served a much deeper purpose. When the gauze mask was removed, I found myself in a readjusted world. I checked out of the handsome suite at the first-class hotel, packed my papers and a few incidental belongings, and left for Mexico, an elemental country where you can quickly forget the false dignities and conceits imposed by success, a country where vagrants, innocent as children, curl up to sleep on the pavements, and human voices, especially when their language is not familiar to the ear, are soft as birds. My public self, that artifice of mirrors, did not exist here, and so my natural being was resumed. Then, as a final act of restoration, I settled for a while at Chapala to work on a play called The Poker Night, which later became A Streetcar Named Desire. It is only in his work that an artist can find reality and satisfaction, for the actual world is less intense than the world of his invention and consequently his life, without recourse to violent disorder, does not seem very substantial. The right condition for him is that in which his work is not only convenient but unavoidable. For me, a convenient place to work is a remote place among strangers where there's good swimming. But life should require a certain minimal effort. You should not have too many people waiting on you. You should have to do most things for yourself. Hotel service is embarrassing. Maids, waiters, bellhops, porters, and so forth are the most embarrassing people in the world for they continually remind you of inequities which we accept as the proper thing. The sight of an ancient woman gasping and wheezing as she pulls a heavy pail of water down a hotel corridor to mop up the mess of some drunken, overprivileged guest is one that sickens and weighs upon the heart and withers it with shame for this world in which it is not only tolerated but regarded as proof positive that the wheels of democracy are functioning as they should, without interference from above or below. Nobody should have to clean up anybody else's mess in this world. It's terribly bad for both parties, but probably worse for the one receiving the service. I've been corrupted as much as anyone else by the vast number of menial services which our society has grown to expect and depend on. We should do for ourselves, or let the machines do, do for us, the glorious technology that is supposed to be the new light of the world. We are like a man who has brought up a great amount of equipment for a camping trip, who has the canoe and the tent and the fishing lines and the axe and the guns, the mackinaw and the blankets, but who now, when all the preparations and provisions are piled expertly together, is suddenly too timid to cast out on the journey, but remains where he was yesterday and the day before and the day before that, looking suspiciously through white lace curtains at the clear sky he distrusts. Our technology is a God-given chance for adventure and progress, which we are afraid to attempt. Our ideas and our ideals remain exactly what they were and where they were three centuries ago. No, I beg your pardon, it is no longer safe for a man to even declare them. This is a long excursion from a small theme into a large one, which I did not intend to make, so let me go back to what I was saying before. This is an oversimplification. One does not escape that easily from the seduction of an effete way of life. You cannot arbitrarily say to yourself, I will not continue my life as it were before this thing. Success happened to me. But once you fully apprehend the vacuity of a life without struggle, 
you're equipped with the basic means of salvation. Once you know this is true, that the heart of man, his body, and his brain are forged in a white-hot furnace for the purpose of conflict, the struggle of creation, and that with that conflict removed, the man is a sword cutting daisies, and not privation, but luxury is the wolf at the door. And the fangs of this wolf are all the little vanities and conceits and laxities that success is heir to. Why, then with this knowledge, you are at least in a position of knowing where the danger lies. You know, then, that the public somebody you are when you have a name is a fiction created with mirrors that only the somebody worth being is a solitary and unseen you that existed from your first breath, and which is the sum of your actions and is so constantly in a state of becoming under your own volition. And knowing these things, you can survive the catastrophe of success. It is never altogether too late unless you embrace the bitch goddess, as William James called her, with both arms and find in her smothering caress exactly what the homesick little boy and you always wanted. Absolute protection and utter effortlessness. Security is a kind of death, I think, and it can come to you in a storm of royalty checks beside the kidney-shaped pool in Beverly Hills or anywhere at all that is removed from the conditions that made you the artist, if that's what you are or intended to be. Ask anyone who's experienced the kind of success I'm talking about. What good is it? Perhaps to get an honest answer, you'll have to give them a shot of truth serum, but the word he will finally groan is unprintable in genteel publications. So then what is good? The obsessive interest in human affairs, plus a certain amount of compassion and moral conviction, that first made the experience of living something that must be translated into pigment, or music, or bodily movement, or poetry, or prose, or anything that's dynamic and expressive. That's what's good for you if you're at all serious in your aims. William Soroyan wrote a great play on this theme, that purity of heart is the one success worth having. In the time of your life, live. That time is short and it doesn't return again. It's slipping away while I write this and while you read it. And the monosyllable of the clock is loss, 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 unless you devote your heart to its opposition. Damn, that's some good shit right there. All right, that wasn't too bad, was it? It's always enjoyable to read something written by a person with a gift for the English language. And I mean Tennessee Williams here, not me, obviously. Uh, So what's the takeaway from this uh, episode or this lesson or whatever it's going to be? For me, it was the part about scratching and clawing for survival. And allowing yourself to get too comfortable is like dying a slow death. It can make us afraid to try new things. I've definitely seen that in my own situation the last five years or so. Looking at this from a real estate investing perspective, the lesson was that setting up enough mailbox money to be idle isn't the ultimate goal or the mark of being successful, really. Rather, it can be the process, enjoying the struggle, okay? The challenges and growth that come from learning new things. Maybe in your situation, that means taking on larger projects, a little bit more complicated renovations here and there, or building a management company, or finding a new way to track your financials, or you know, a website for your company, or trying to improve your leasing and management process, maybe improving your credit score. Your approach to real estate can be seen as an art, so feel free to be creative in coming up with your own path and realize that true real estate investors don't ever retire. They simply die with more plans in their brains that are unfulfilled. Now, hopefully they did some good tax planning, but you know what I'm saying. They have all these future things they'd like to do and projects and stuff like that they never get to, and that's okay. That's okay. It's better than running out of stuff to do. That's pretty depressing. 
So don't be like that depressed retiree looking for meaning in their day-to-day life. So often, when their working life is over, they miss the camaraderie of the office, for sure, just like any athlete would, too. But they also miss the problem-solving aspect of their job, unless it was just complete, utter monotony. The resourcefulness and creativity that it takes to be successful in our in our careers is what makes us feel alive, or solving problems as a family, or whatever it happens to be, you know, coaching a team or something. That makes us feel valuable and accomplished. And for many of us, it's actually part of our identity. I'm an engineer. I'm a coach. I'm a teacher, right? For me, I don't tell people I'm a realtor first. I tell them that I'm an investor and then a realtor. I've been an investor now for over 20 years and a realtor for about five. So it's definitely clear where my background came from. And it's absolutely part of my identity. It helps me evaluate things in life. It helps people understand where I'm coming from. They can know that about me and understand other aspects of my personality and character. So... Anyway, I've been lucky enough to have a few mini retirements along the way and some really long vacations too. And after a while, I get restless and even kind of depressed. When that happens, I remember this essay and I realize, oh yeah, I need to be doing something. I need to keep my brain alive. When I was on my two-month European vacation in 2017, one of my last places I was in was, um, was I in Dublin at this point? I think I was in Scotland, let's say... Edinburgh, maybe? Or Glasgow, I forget which one. But I was in a cool, just a really cool Airbnb looking over the downtown. And uh, it was the guy, I was like his first or second customer that was ever in there. And by the time I left, two days later, I had like written up a whole business plan for him and things he could change and update and suggestions on how to make his place get better reviews and the things I'd seen after, after being an Airbnb guest for the last almost two months straight in different cities and different countries. Uh, I just couldn't turn it off. I was like, I need to help this guy. I need to, I need to get this creative energy out. I need to start building a website again or something like that. So I just can't turn it off too long or I'll get depressed and feel kind of, kind of, uh, useless. Like I don't have any, I'm not contributing to the family or to the society in general. So, um, anyway, that leads me to my final point. One of the best things about real estate is you can do it in any way that you want. You can pay off each property quickly and then buy another one, or you could stretch out the loans for 30 years. You can flip houses, even though I don't recommend it. You can hold rentals. You can buy commercial buildings or warehouse space. You can build things if you want. You can turn around apartments. That's what I used to do. You can even be a realtor, an appraiser, or a home inspector. There's a path out there for anyone based on your risk tolerance, your financial means, and your timeline, your family's goals, and things like that. You can do anything you want with this business, and you can find success in any route you choose. You don't have to necessarily have 100 rentals or 10 or 5 or any, if you want to be, you know, in a different aspect of this business, although I would suggest you have some anyway, just keep in mind the challenge, the struggle is part of the fun, right? Not at the time, but in the big picture, the campfire stories you tell are the ones where things went wrong and you're like, check this out. This was horrible. And here's a funny story for you. Uh, it's part of the journey. It helps us improve our capability or in other words, The struggle helps us build the muscles we're going to need to survive at the next level of our adventure, right? It's what we were made to do over the years and years of evolution. So don't be afraid of it and don't wish that it was over. Wish that you were better, right? That's a Jim Rohn quote. When you see yourself or somebody else struggling with the catastrophe of success, the restless person with the boat and all the Yeti coolers and all the other bullshit, or the retired person sitting around fishing every day and getting bored with it, Remember that we're designed to struggle, to achieve and overcome obstacles. And that's when we're at our best. So if you need to share this essay with them, please do. Not so much the podcast episode. That's up to you if you want to do that. But 
The Catastrophe of Success, you can Google it. It's everywhere on the internet. It's been around for, you know, 50-something years already, but 60 years, almost 70 years? I don't know. I'm losing track of my math today, but uh, it's an excellent essay. It's a life changer for me, and um, don't wish it was over. Just enjoy the struggle, man. All right. I hear Bodie coming in from the other room. I guess it's time to go take a walk. So I'm going to leave you with this one and maybe we'll talk about some tax stuff in the next week or two and go on from there. So hope you're having a good day. Hope you're having success and enjoying your struggle. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, remember to subscribe to get each new episode right when they come out and take two minutes to give me a quick five-star rating and a little review inside your podcast player. Our listeners are usually pretty serious about moving forward as real estate investors, whether that means just getting started or adding another place. I'm a licensed real estate broker in Auburn, and I specialize in working with investors as opposed to most realtors that are best at finding you a house for you to live in personally. I mean, look at the name of my company and this podcast, Auburn Investment Properties, right? I can't make it much more obvious than that. My typical clients are optimistic, smart, and financially stable people who invest for lots of reasons, from saving money on college housing to adding some steady retirement income. If you've been thinking about this for a while but wanted an experienced local broker, you found them. I've got the tools, experience, and local connections to answer your questions, move you past your fear and uncertainty, and help guide you as far as you want to go in this business. Ready to get started? Go to our website. It's aippodcast.com and find the page that says work with me. Tell me what you're looking for and I'll set you up with instant market alerts on relevant properties in Auburn. If you'd rather have a conversation, my phone number and email address are right on that page too. Super easy, right? Once again, that website is aippodcast.com and look for the page called work with me. There will also be a link in the show notes of this episode. I look forward to hearing from you soon.